You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the US. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you're listening to your favorite international podcast. The podcast hosted by two online friends who never met in real life and who get together once a week in this online space that we created to talk about murder, mystery, and the macabre throughout history. That's right, but sometimes we also talk about other things, like animals or art theft. Yeah, true, like we covered the theft of the Saliera from the Kunsthistorische Museum in Vienna. Yeah, that was wild. And today, we're going to cover a type of crime that we have actually never covered before. At least, I don't think we have. And that is white-collar crime. Wikipedia defines white-collar crime as, quote, The term white-collar crime refers to financially motivated, non-violent, or non-directly violent crime committed by individuals, businesses, and government professionals. It was first defined by the sociologist Edwin Sutherland in 1939 as, quote, a crime committed by a person of respectability and high social status in the course of their occupation, end quote. Typical white-collar crimes could include wage theft, fraud, bribery, Ponzi schemes, insider trading, labor racketeering, embezzlement, cybercrime, money laundering, identity theft, and forgery, all manner of things that we've touched on in the past, haven't we? But never this deeply. Yeah. White-collar crime overlaps with corporate crime with some frequency, end quote. So we know that some people find these kinds of financial crimes boring, but that's not the case here. This case has almost everything. War, poison, anger management issues, a beautiful Victorian house, and either a paranormal encounter or some sort of psychotic break. So this is right up our alley. Our creepy, dark, possum-filled, and very possibly haunted alley. This is <laughs> it's where we live. It's true. Yeah. This all takes place after World War II, but to understand everything, including the psychology of the people involved, we need to get back further. It all takes place in a small mill town in upstate New York, located in driving distance to Rochester, Buffalo, and Elmira. And it is one of those typical American small towns, and people often compare it to Seneca Falls, New York. There's a steel truss bridge that runs over a canal, a train station, old Victorian houses, front yards full of hollyhocks and roses, and a 275 meters or 300 yards long main street called Genesee Street that runs through the town center. There you'll find the courthouse located on the street's north end, but also, quote, over 30 stores and buildings including a public library, a dance academy, a trust and savings bank, a Western Union and American Airlines office, a barber shop, a florist, a beauty shop, a bakery, an antique shop, a world luggage and sports shop, a hardware store, a candy shop, an art store, a music store, and a theater. There's also a drug store, a toy shop, a meat market, a newspaper office, a tailor shop, a bicycle shop, uh, a bowling alley, and a pool house. 
a hotel, a grocery, two cafes, a bond store, a gas company, a telephone exchange, a police station, end quote, and the office of the Bailey Brothers Building and Loan, situated at the corner of Genesis Street and Jefferson Avenue. That was a pretty impressive list of yeah. amenities. Yeah. There's everything. everything location, location, location. Yeah. What else do you want? Nothing. It has everything. Building and loan associations, also commonly known as savings and loan associations, SNLs, or thrifts, represent a pivotal element in the financial landscape, playing a crucial role in fostering home ownership and community development. These institutions have a rich historical legacy dating back to the 19th century and have been instrumental in shaping the housing market, particularly in the United States. At their core, building and loan associations are financial institutions that specialize in mobilizing savings from individual depositors and utilizing these funds to provide mortgage loans for individuals seeking to purchase homes. This dual function not only serves the financial needs of depositors, but also contributes significantly to the growth and stability of the housing sector. So essentially, your savings are used to help other people buy mortgages, build homes. One of the defining features of building and loan associations is the community-centric approach. Unlike larger, more impersonal financial institutions, these entities often have a local focus, aiming to meet the specific financial needs of the communities they serve. By providing accessible and affordable mortgage loans, they have been and continue to be integral contributors to the realization of the quintessential American dream, homeownership. The relationship between building and loan associations and their members is distinctive. Depositors are not merely customers but are considered members or shareholders in these mutual institutions. This ownership structure means the interests of depositors are aligned with the success and stability of the association. Profits generated are often reinvested into the institution or distributed to members in the form of dividends, creating a sense of shared prosperity and community. A key function of building and loan associations is to accept savings deposits. This serves a dual purpose. It provides a stable source of funds for the association, and it offers individuals a secure avenue for saving money. The deposits act as the lifeblood of these institutions, forming the foundation upon which mortgage loans are extended. The mortgage lending aspect of building and loan associations is pivotal in driving the housing market. By offering mortgage loans to aspiring homeowners, these associations empower individuals who might otherwise face financial barriers to home ownership. This, in turn, contributes to the stability and growth of local communities, fostering a sense of pride and permanence among residents. However, building and loan associations are not immune to economic dynamics. Interest rate sensitivity is a factor that can impact their operations. Changes in interest rates, especially in the case of mismatch between the interest rates on deposits and the rates on long-term fixed-rate mortgages, can pose challenges to the financial health of these institutions. Regulation is a critical aspect of the Building and Loan Association landscape. Regulatory oversight is in place to ensure the stability of these institutions and the protection of depositors. Compliance with financial regulation is essential for maintaining 
the trust of members, and the broader financial system. So it's safe to say that building and loan associations represent a unique and community-oriented model of financial institution, with a historical legacy deeply intertwined with the growth of homeownership These institutions continue to play a vital role in shaping local economies and fostering the dreams of countless individuals seeking a place to call home. The building and loan in Bedford Falls was run by the Bailey brothers. That was Peter Bailey and his brother William, called Billy. Now, Billy was an interesting man, and I have the feeling he would have been one of us if he were around today. Yeah. Why? Well, first of all, he had a pet raven that he took to work. But not only a pet raven, he loved all the animals. He actually shared his home with a squirrel, a monkey, dogs, cats. It's it's a lot of animals. We could basically feel a complete sign-off on one of our episodes just with Billy Bailey's pets. Mm-hmm. Also, he seemed to have suffered from maybe ADHD. Of course, we can't armchair diagnose and pathologize anyone. But there were some indications for Billy struggling with some daily tasks. He was very forgetful. He would often use little strings that he would knot around a finger so that he would look at it and be reminded that he shouldn't forget something. This practice is similar to the knot in the handkerchief and it it always seems weird to me. If you have problems with remembering stuff you need to do, how is a knot helping you? It's basically just, hey... There's something you shouldn't forget, but no idea what that was kind of thing, which to me personally, that wouldn't be helpful at all. I don't know, just write it down, carry a tiny notebook with you, and then maybe do the string around your finger thing that reminds you to check your notebook. Or am I missing something here? Okay, so I actually know the answer to this one. So, long story short, attention deficit is more like too much attention to everything in a way that makes it really hard to focus because everything's interesting and it distracts you. So I have a little notebook. I have a bunch of them and I go to write in it, but then wait, where's my pen? Or what if the pen is out of ink? Where did I leave the notebook? So then I remember where it is, but then I've got like a one in 20 chance of actually getting the pen or finding the notebook before something else takes my attention. The timer goes off, the phone rings, the dog needs to go out, right? So I think you're totally right about the finger strings and for most most neurotypical folks, people who don't have these kinds of struggles, I think it works really well. But um not for me and not for Billy. I think he's he was pretty special, not just flaky. Yeah, he was also rather fidgety, impulsive, unable to concentrate on a single task. Oh hi, have we met? <laughs> And now you might think, well, why would Billy work at a place with a lot of financial responsibility if he's so forgetful and fidgety? And that is a great question, especially as it was in the 1910s and 1920s that the Bailey brothers started their business and ADHD awareness was just not a thing yet. I think that the Bailey family felt that Billy was having problems with a lot of work-related stuff and therefore might have had problems actually finding employment but that his brother Peter kind of took him under his wing and offered him a safe work environment. That's just my impression. Yeah, for sure. Well, he was part of the family business, and he's the family. Yeah, and I mean, there were were cousins and whatnot working there as well, so it was a whole family experience. And it wasn't a situation where he wasn't doing anything. No, 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 not at all. He He was a good worker, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. 
We can't talk about the building and loan without talking about Henry F. Potter, who not only owned that Bedford Falls bank, but most other buildings and homes in the small town. Mr. Potter was driven around town in such an expensive and ornate carriage that he could easily be mistaken for a king. But he was no king, he was just the richest and meanest man in the county. Someone who was commonly referred to as a robber baron, a powerful, wealthy industrialist or business magnate who gained their fortune through ruthless and unscrupulous business practices during the late 19th and early 20th century in the United States. These individuals were often involved in industries such as railroads, steel, oil and finance, and they were criticized for exploiting workers, engaging in anti-competitive practices and amassing enormous wealth at the expense of the general public. Mr. Potter was in infamous company, though, as some of the well-known figures labeled as robber barons include John D. Rockefeller, Andrew Carnegie, J.P. Morgan and Cornelius Vanderbilt. Of course, while the term robber baron is kind of a negative one, it's important to note that not everyone uses this term to describe these historical figures in a negative light, and some argue that these industrialists also played a crucial role in the economic development of the United States. The alternative term captain of industry is sometimes used to emphasize their positive contributions, such as creating jobs and fostering economic growth. And Henry F. Potter did create job opportunities and rental homes, but never out of the goodness of his heart, but solely for capitalistic reasons. He wanted to take every last dime of those he usually referred to as suckers and yokels. So of course the building and loan was a constant thorn in Potter's side, as Peter and Billy Bailey helped people in their community to become homeowners. And wouldn't you know it, of course Potter holds a minority stake, which automatically gives him a seat at the building and loan's board of directors. But of course, this is not enough. Potter wanted all of it. He wanted to crush the building and loan, and he wanted to crush the Bailey brothers. Yeah. He's, he's a slumlord. Slumlord, that's another good word for him. Yeah. Yes. He is a slumlord, and he also has real Mr. Burns vibes. Yeah. So Billy and Peter are working hard at building and loan, trying to help the community, and Billy marries a lovely woman named Laura. Unfortunately, she died way too soon and Billy never remarried. He dedicated his time to working and with his beloved pets. Peter Bailey married as well, and his wife Irene would have two sons. In 1907, their firstborn George came, and four years later, Harry arrived. George and Harry were very close, and George would take his little brother with him when he was out having fun with his friends. He probably didn't have much of a choice, but it really didn't seem like he minded it all that much. Then, one winter's day in 1919, tragedy strikes. George, Harry, and their friends are out sliding down a snowy slope on their shovels and out onto the frozen canal. Everything was fun and games until it was Harry's turn. Harry, who would have been seven or eight at the time, slid too far out and broke through the thin ice, nearly drowning. Of course, George jumped in after his baby brother and ultimately saved his life, but at a small cost. George caught a very bad cold and a resulting terrible ear infection that left him deaf in his left ear for the rest of his life. 
George is a hero. Yeah, he's definitely a hero, and it wouldn't be the last time that he would save a life. Around the time George was a young teenage boy, he worked part-time at the local drugstore. He would deliver meds to customers and serve drinks at the soda fountain. This was actually a pretty good deal for the drugstore because George was somewhat of a teenage heartthrob for the local girls, and they would constantly come in and order drinks or purchase shoelace candy. I really want shoelace licorice now. But even at this young age, George already showed kind of an attitude turning down his nose on what he perceived as small-town folks. For example, he loved to call people who wouldn't order coconut brainless because everyone has to love coconut in his world. They're tropical. What's not to love? Come on. How are you not going to eat the coconut? Because from an early age, George perceived the world outside of Bedford Falls as more exciting and he is longing to leave the small town smell behind him and go on adventurous travels all over the world. In his mind, the three most exciting sounds in the whole wide world are not breakfast is served, lunch is served, and dinner is served, but rather the rattling of an anchor chain, an airplane motor, or a train whistle. And I agree. But I digress. Let's talk about the second time George saved a little boy's life. One day, in May of 1919, he arrives at work at the drugstore as usual, but something is off. George soon realizes that his boss, Mr. Gower, is heavily intoxicated, and he's not usually a drunk-before-noon sort of guy. This is because Mr. Gower received some terrible news that day. His son had suddenly passed away from influenza. We already mentioned it briefly in other episodes, but 1919 was, of course, the height of the great influenza epidemic, also known as the Spanish flu, that would cost the life of approximately 25 to 50 million people worldwide. Some even think as many as 100 million deaths were related to this epidemic. It disproportionately killed young adults and is often named as one of the reasons why World War I ended sooner than expected. This is, of course, an oversimplification, so for further reading, we once more can recommend the books The Great Influenza by John M. Barry and Pale Rider, The Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World by Laura Spinney. Okay, so unfortunately, Mr. Gower's son had just passed away and he obviously was in complete shock and had been drinking heavily since the telegraph had arrived. And that's all understandable. But also, Please don't drink and also handle medication, because now we have ourselves a real humbug Billy kind of situation happening. Mr. Gower, who had been preparing the meds for a sick child suffering from diphtheria, while schnockered, has accidentally taken white powder from a giant bottle that says poison, clear as day on it, poison, and he doesn't see it. And so George gets the order to deliver this meds, these meds. But thank dog, he's a smart boy. He's an explorer. And he sees the bottle of poison and the powder just sprinkled everywhere and knows he shouldn't deliver the meds. Of course, he would get in trouble for this because it's the good old days when children were never allowed to question authority which was basically every grown-up they'd encounter, and they could expect a good beating from pretty much anyone, especially your adult boss. But after some bloody ears, which is, I mean, honestly, 
Did he have to hit him directly in the ear? He's a mean drunk, Mr. Gower. So yeah, after some bloody ears, George is finally allowed to speak a few words and explain the whole poison thing. And he basically not only saved the little diphtheria patient from certain death, but he also saved Mr. Gower from going to jail for 20 plus years. So George Bailey is a hero once again. But it's not all roses and sunshine with George. First of all, he does have a good face, even when he grew older, but at 21, he already looks like he's in his late 30s, mm. which shows under how much stress he must have been constantly. Yeah. Also, it's the old times and there's, you know, depression and wars going on. Yeah, and nobody wore sunscreen and smoke was everywhere. Yeah. And he is kind and tries to help and do the right thing, but there is a dark side to him. He definitely has a lot of anger issues, and we will talk about it later because it mostly shows later once he has a family of his own. And he has some kind of superiority complex, looking down on his family, friends, the building and loan, and Bedford Falls in general. I mean, I get it, and Annie, I think you understand it too. George is the oldest child, and we are the oldest children. It's often the role of the oldest one to carry more responsibility, to be the reliable one, the one who takes care of things. I mean, there is a whole thing, a so-called eldest daughter syndrome, and I'm 100% sure there's something similar for firstborn sons as well in a family with only boys. Oh, I think so, yeah. I think it's pretty much exactly the same, but... With girls, you have to do it backward in heels. And with boys, you're just not ever allowed to show emotion. Yeah. And so George Bailey goes through similar things. As we said before, he had these big dreams of going to college, traveling the world, being an explorer and building modern cities on different continents. But it would stay a dream. First of all, his parents couldn't afford to send him away to college because the building and loan never made real profit. Peter, Billy, and their families lived rather modest lives, but George managed to save enough money by himself to actually afford college, which is such an accomplishment. All was set for George to leave Bedford Falls. His ticket was bought. He even had a monogrammed suitcase with lots of space for all kinds of stickers. The suitcase was a gift from his old boss, Mr. Gower. Basically, a thank you for not letting him poison a child and also a sorry for beating your ears bloody. But as so often, life had different plans for George. Just days before George was about to go on his big adventure, his father suffered a stroke and unfortunately passed away. And so the only way to keep the building and loan up and running was for George to take over for his father. And this is another example of George being a caring brother because he gave the money he saved for college to his little brother Harry so he could go away to college. The plan was actually that after finishing college, Harry was to come back and take over for George so he could finally leave Bedford Falls. But, again, these plans didn't come to fruition. Harry returned, yes, but he returned with a wife, and a new job in his wealthy father-in-law's company. What a big fuck you to his older brother. I mean, of course, Harry was all like, hey, I'm really not going to take the super awesome job I was just offered, but George knew that it was all just for show and that once more he was stuck in this small town. And I think this is the moment when George Bailey's anger issues really started to manifest. Because now, with being stuck there indefinitely, George decided that it was time to marry 
and have a family of his own, and he decided an old friend's girlfriend would be the right fit. Her name was Mary Hatch, and she was actually the little sister of one of George's old schoolmates, Marty, and she had been secretly in love with George since she was a little girl. So one day, in 1932, George marches over to Mary's home, but he arrives there completely pissed and rude and basically tells Mary that she's ridiculous for liking Bedford Falls, then he shakes Mary violently, making her cry by telling her that he doesn't want to be married and live what he considers a boring life. Mmm, romantic. Don't you love it when a guy just shakes you violently anytime he can't express emotion? I know I do. And screams in my face, that's the best. <laughs> it's the best. Who doesn't want that? And of course they get married. Lord knows why. Well, Mary later confessed that she had used some form of ancient witchcraft ritual where you had to throw a stone through the window of an abandoned house during a full moon, I think, while making a wish. Mm -hmm. And Mary's wish was to marry George. So he basically had no choice and no free will in that matter whatsoever. Yeah, that tracks. So they do get married, and finally George will be able to leave Bedford Falls, even if it's not forever, but just for their honeymoon, you know? I mean, the poor guy. But guess what? Once more, life has different plans for him, and just as the newlyweds are on their way to the train station, they pass by the building in Lone, where an angry mob is forming. It's the middle of the Great Depression, and it has finally reached Bedford Falls. And everyone and their grandma are there to get their money back, which, of course, will bankrupt the company. The only way to save the building and loan, and with it, the homeowners, is by taking the $2,000 George and Mary have saved for their honeymoon and use it to pay out the mob. This, of course, once more angers Mr. Potter, who was already waiting for his chance to buy up the Bailey brothers for almost nothing. You see, he was the kind of person who will never not try to take advantage of a good business deal. Do you realize that this is the third time that George tries to get on a train leaving Bedford Falls? If I wouldn't know it better, I think this is some kind of Truman Show situation going on. Mm, it's almost like something is compelling him to stay. By the way, $2,000 from 1932 would be $45,000 today, and I'd say that's some nice honeymoon money. That's Orient Express money, baby. Almost. 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 So, while they can't enjoy their honeymoon, they at least manage to buy a house. It's a beautiful but extremely run-down two-story Victorian home, located at 320 Sycamore Street and Mary starts to decorate and renovate immediately. She is in nesting mode, and she's extremely skillful. She has great taste and does everything pretty much by herself. George, on the other hand, is not the biggest fan of what he calls a drafty old house. The couple would have four children, Pete, born in 1934, Janie, born in 1935, Zuzu, born in 1940, and Tommy, born in 1941. Bedford Falls prospered. More people were able to purchase their own homes with a loan from Building and Loan. And there was a growing residential area just north of Mount Bedford called Bailey Park, where lots of affordable, pretty little family homes were being built. World War II came and went, and George Bailey was unfit to serve overseas due to his bad ear. But he did what he could in his community, 
as air raid warden doing scrap, rubber, and paper drives and handling ration points. But Harry Bailey... Harry was the biggest hero of Bedford Falls. He was a Navy pilot during the war, shooting down 15 enemy planes and saving hundreds of soldiers, earning him the Congressional Medal of Honor. It's now the 24th of December, 1945, the day before Christmas. Mm, the day when we celebrate and give gifts our Heiliger Abend. That's right. And Bedford Falls is preparing to welcome their local hero, Harry Bailey, who is expected to arrive back in town the next day. Everything is just swell. The sun is shining. Everybody is in a good mood, taking care of their final Christmas preparations. But of course, there is still some work to be done before every shop, every office, and every bank closes down for the holidays. And one of the things that need to be done in the Building and Loans office is to deposit this month's money at the bank. It's one of Uncle Billy's tasks to take the money over to the bank, $8,000 to be exact, which would be, geez, $136,500 in today's money. Yeah, that's at least one horse and two heirloom carpets money. For sure. So Uncle Billy fills in the deposit slip and he gets ready to walk over to the counter when he runs into Mr. Potter. And that's when Bill Bailey makes a huge mistake. He loses his cool, and he teases Potter by showing him a newspaper headline related to Harry. Then he casually wraps the money in that same newspaper, and without even realizing it, hands it to Potter. He only realizes that the $8,000 are gone when he tries to deposit it. The money is not in his hand, it's not in his pocket, it's not at the table where he filled in that paper slip. It's not in the trash can, it's nowhere. Oh, God, I know exactly how he must have felt at that moment. I do so many things absent-minded that I'm constantly looking for my keys, my wallet, my phone. I once threw my car keys in a trash can at the supermarket and only found it after an hour. I don't know if I ever told the story. If not, let me know and I'll tell you all one of these days. Yeah, I'd like to hear that. And I also know that feeling. And so all the while, Potter is sitting in his office and he has the $8,000 that he's just found wrapped up in the newspaper. And he knows damn well where that money came from and who it belongs to. Also that it wasn't a gift, I guess. Right, obviously not. I mean, Merry Christmas, Mr. Potter, but yeah. Yeah, obviously not. And so, well, he of course does the right thing. And he returns the money and everyone lived happily ever after the end. No, that's not what happened. He kept the money. And then he watched from his office while Bill Bailey panics and grows more and more desperate by the minute. There is just one more problem. On that day, there is a bank examiner checking on the finances of the building and loan to be sure that their numbers are in order. <sighs> you couldn't make these things up. No, you really couldn't. So... Of course, the missing 8,000 is going to be a problem immediately, immediately a problem. And that's why Uncle Billy has to come clean and tell George immediately what he's done, tell his nephew. And so at first, George tries to stay calm and together they retrace all of Billy's steps trying to find the money, but nothing. Then George starts to get really desperate and the anger starts to bubble up. All that anger that has been building up over the years George also knows that the missing money 
will mean a societal and professional scandal, and very possibly a prison sentence. So he is mad as hell, and he decides he is going to take his fool of an uncle down with him, and he starts to shake him violently. Yeah, George's signature move whenever he's angry or overwhelmed. Yeah. But Uncle Billy is not the only one who will get a taste of George's temper that night. At home, he yells at the kids, Kids who are excited about Christmas, one dares to ask him how to spell hallelujah, the other one dares to play the piano, and the third one dares to be sick in bed and everyone gets yelled at. George also kicks some furniture around and throws paperwork to the ground and then, without an explanation, he storms out of the house leaving his upset and very confused family behind. I mean, I get it, this man is desperate and fears for his and his family's future, but that's not right. George tries to raise the money by any means he can think of. He tries to call his wealthier friends, but can't reach them. He even stoops as low as begging Mr. Potter for a loan. And so Potter finally tells him to not worry, he has the money here, it was all a misunderstanding. <laughs> uh, no, he actually laughs, of course he doesn't do that, he actually laughs in George's face, tells him that due to his life insurance he's worth more dead than alive. And then he tells him that he's going to call the police and the newspaper now and inform them of George Bailey embezzling the money of his clients. Hmm. Just one moment here. How many crimes does Mr. Potter actually commit? Theft, defamation, false reporting of a crime, unfair competition. I mean, this must all be in there, right? Yeah. Also, telling a desperate man that he is better off being dead is a new level of evil. It's also illegal, I think. I think so. I Wasn't there yeah. this case of this girl? Here. Yeah, and just in this yeah, area. Yeah, yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. And George Bailey takes it by heart and he runs off first to the local watering hole and then onto the steel bridge that runs over the canal, standing there for a while contemplating suicide. And this is where one of two possible things happen. Either a psychotic break or a real paranormal encounter. We will tell you how it was reported at the time and then we'll tell you what we think and then you can make up your own mind. So George Bailey is standing on this bridge actually contemplating suicide when he sees a man falling in the ice cold water. George was always one to help people in need and so without thinking for even a second, he jumps after the man to save his life. And while drying their clothes and heating up at the bridge guard's quarter, the man introduces himself as Clarence Oddbody, an AS2, which means Angel Second Class, one without wings, remember that term. He claims that he was born in 1653 and that after his death, he is now a guardian angel and he has been trying for 200 years to earn his wings. Clarence further claims that he has not a chance to earn his wings by helping George in this darkest hour. He also explains that every time a bell rings, an angel gets their wings. But of course, George Bailey is like, sure, Jen, and doesn't believe a word this odd man tells him. So Clarence has a brilliant idea. He shows George how life in Bedford Falls would be if George Bailey had never been born. And these are the main things that would change without a George Bailey in the world. There would be no Bailey building and loan. George played a crucial role in managing the Bailey building and loan 
Without George, the building and loan might not have existed after Peter's death or might have been controlled by the ruthless Mr. Potter, and many people would have lost their hard-earned money and their homes. The town would have been renamed to Pottersville. Without George's influence, the town loses its sense of community and becomes a darker, less compassionate place. The main street would have been lined with casinos, bars, striptease joints and pawn shops. To quote Arthur Spooner, a historian from Queens, New York and Bedford Falls expert, quote, With George Bailey, the town is boring. Without him, there's nightclubs and bars. It's fabulous. I wish he hadn't been born, end quote. I agree. Harry Bailey would have died in 1919 when he broke through the ice. Harry owed his life to George's heroic actions as a child. Without George, Harry might not have survived the Icy Canal incident and his subsequent achievements, including his role in World War II saving hundreds and hundreds of soldiers, would have been different. Although, in my humble opinion, Harry would probably never have been sliding down that hill that day if it wouldn't have been for George in the first place. And now for the worst thing, worse than death and Potter's will and people losing their homes, Mary's fate. According to Clarence, without George, Mary would have become an old maid working in a library wearing glasses. No. The horror. To be fair, at first I was like, this can only come from a man's brain, that the worst fate for a woman would be to stay unmarried. But then I remembered that Mary once claimed that without George, she would have turned into an old maid. So, okay, I can let that go. But Mary, darling, if George would have never been born, you would have never fallen in love with him in the first place. Mm -hmm. You would have married and loved someone else and would not miss George Bailey because he would have never existed. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. Come to us for all your relationship advice. But yeah, this is a time paradox. That's what this is. And that last bit was more than George could take. And he found a whole new appreciation for his small town life. He immediately ran back home to that gorgeous, drafty, haunted old house at 320 Sycamore to hug his wife and children. He's even ready to go to jail. Because what's a few years behind bars if only Mary doesn't have to live as a spinster and wear glasses? But honestly, once more, Mary Bailey saves the day. While George was out drinking and having a nervous breakdown, she was all over town drumming up everyone who knew and liked George, or who owed him a favor. One by one, the whole community started to walk into their cozy home, handing over their hard-earned nest eggs to bail out George Bailey. No pun intended. Even Mary's former beau wires 25 grand to help George out. Yeah, so just let me get this straight. Potter keeps the money, consequence-free. The townspeople hand their savings to George so that he has the money. And on top of all of that, George also gets $25,000. Well, looks like he has a wonderful life after all. You know what they say. No man is a failure who has friends. The big question remains, though. Was Clarence a figment of George's imagination? Or was he really a guardian angel? Johanna. Well, I call stress or anxiety-related hallucinations. For me, the biggest indicator for all being in George's head was the fact that he claimed that Clarence said he's an angel second class, right? And Clarence abbreviates that with AS2, which makes no sense. Mm. A real angel second class would know that it's actually an A2C 
or an ASC. AS2, so Angel Second 2, yeah, that's not Angel Lingo. No, I agree, that doesn't seem correct. That said, I am inclined to go for the paranormal on this one. I think it was probably actually a guardian angel, or possibly a Mothman-type situation with wings. Who can say? But I believe, I believe he saw something. Yeah. And that's it? And that's it. And don't forget, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Tschüss und frohe Weihnachten. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. This episode was, of course, the plot to the 1947 Christmas film, It's a Wonderful Life, based on the short story, The Greatest Gift, by Philip Van Doren Stern. The movie was directed by Frank Capra, starring James Stewart, Donna Reed, and Lionel Barrymore.